It is evil things we shall be fighting against. Brute force, bad faith, injustice, oppression, and persecution. Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, 1939. This quote comes from the early years of World War II and the understatement of the century really looking back on it now. Retrospective lenses definitely shape how things are viewed. But the British Prime Minister could have no clue how things would turn out shortly after the German invasion of Poland in 1939. Even more difficult to imagine is how close humanity got to the very depths of itself and how it would change how other humans viewed each other in the aftermath of such adversity. Today we are looking at the aftermath more than the war itself, but of course the two are connected so there will be both. Plenty of harrowing tales to be had today on another episode of The Remedial Scholar. That's ancient history. I feel I was denied, critical, need to know information. It belongs in a museum, Stop skipping your remedial class. Welcome back to the Remedial Scholar. If you're new here, then welcome and thank you for joining us. Love seeing the reviews coming in, uh, continue to come in. There are more reviews on Spotify than on Apple Podcasts, but people listen more on Apple Podcasts. So if you are one of those people, pause really quick, go leave us a review. It's really easy. You go to the, uh, the podcast homepage on Apple Podcasts app and then scroll all the way down. And then there's a section where you can leave stars. You can leave an actual review if you'd like on iTunes. And then um, and then on, on Spotify, it's just stars. But then also you can go to Podchaser, search us there. You know, you can review the show itself there. And you can also give episode reviews as well, which are pretty cool to see. So you can, you know, say you really like the Samurai episode. You can go in and leave a review, maybe drop a fun fact that you learned. And then people who, you know, don't listen to the show can see that and know that they should check it out. Uh, also, if you have any thoughts on the episode, you can leave them there uh, from on Podchaser or on Facebook, uh, on the Facebook post, which you can find in the link tree, which is in the description. And one last thing before we get into the ugly carnivals or ugly circus, uh, if you want to support further, you can send us tips on Linktree or on the Captivate site or just buy the merch. But, you know, word of mouth is the best method to help us out. Uh, so, on to the show. War is messy, and war, war is hell. I don't think anyone argue the converse, and I think there are a lot of things that can happen within the realms of war that many don't consider when viewing history in re- retrospect. This episode is the type of episode that made me want to do this podcast. This is the uncovered, like, history that is so very intriguing, darkly fascinating, and unless you are specialized in things like the Second World War... You won't know too much about it unless you go searching or unless you talk to someone who just listened to a podcast about it, right? Well, that will all, you know, change hopefully by the end of this. The dark chapters of recent history on our planet, our people echo some of the things that are really medieval in nature while all happening in the 1940s. This all really needs some contextualization for the so-called ugly carnivals or ugly circus, which, you know, that... That term is not coined by me. I think um, from what I have been able to find, it was coined by a writer from The Guardian who was discussing the collaboration horizontale. Uh, French, obviously, for horizontal collaboration. Listen, I'm glad I... I glad those three years of French in high school paid off. So, horizontal collaboration is what they would call women who were seen as important emphasis seen as sleeping with the enemy during occupation you know many of them probably weren't or if they were they were doing so against their will essentially also wasn't just a french thing nor strictly world war ii thing getting way ahead of myself here but i wanted to clear the air and total blame and derogatory place being put 
on any that may have done things against their will and then been ostracized and attacked for those actions later on. So let us go back a little bit to tell this story going to the years between the world wars. After that, we go into uh, the German invasion and Nazi movements and the places they occupied while discussing the quality of life in these places. It's gonna be mostly France because I found the most information from French sources. That's just what it is, but that can be extrapolated into these other places. Also go into how the locals would have been treated, going into instances of so-called collaborations and collaborators and motives before heading into the war, uh, the end of the war, and the post-war actions against these people. That will take us out, and I'll discuss a couple of famous examples of these actions as well, and the response to them in other wars and fiction examples. So buckle up and get ready to get depressed. Uh, <laughs> for some reason, World War II refuses to be anything other than depressing. Weird. I know. Alright, so as you may be aware, post-World War I was rough for many, but uh, really hard on the people of Germany. The conditions from the Treaty of Versailles left Germany fraught with debt, the people angry, and just a really perfect storm for some terrible things to go down. Scapegoats chosen and the world's goofiest mustache at the helm, Germany slowly began to build their military uh, to exact some sort of revenge. First World War ended in November of 1918, on the 11th day to be specific. Treaty of Versailles was signed in June the following year, which stripped away territory, instituted military restrictions, and of course, reparation payments. Germany attempted to institute a new government, the Weimar Republic, which was adopted in 1919 as well, which was more of a democratic form of government compared to the emperor they had before. Now, they even had a constitution in which they would follow. Look at them go. Unfortunately, they were still stricken with hyperinflation as the government tried to print money to relieve their debt. By 1924, they had received a, a bailout of sorts in the form of the Dawes Plan, which was a series of restructuring as well as loans provided to stabilize the economy. How much were they on the hook for from World War I? Well, at first, there was no real amount because they couldn't decide, but by 1921, 132 billion gold marks was the cost, which was around $31.5 billion. Now, I mentioned the name Dawes. That comes from the man who would oversee a committee that was tasked with resolving the stalemate that had occurred. Charles Dawes, a banker from Chicago, would end up being vice president to Calvin Coolidge, who I always forget about. I think it's probably because the next president just trashed everything. Herbert Hoover, you know, what a dork. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the committee headed by Dawes placed a plan forward that would reduce the annual salary or annual payments for Germany reparations, but increase the amount as their economy improved. It sounds reasonable, but really the fact that they footed the bill for the entire thing is messed up a little bit, right? Like maybe not. Maybe this just looking at it, uh, you know, from a futuristic lens, looking back on everything, hindsight 2020 maybe, knowing what was going to happen afterwards that makes people say, hey, hey, hey might have been too harsh on them. Could also just be, uh, you know, poor management of the economy following the war and the German people angry about reparations, refusing to reconcile the fact that they were on the losing side. You know, kind of a theme that might, and that'll go on a little bit later. Austria also faced a massive inflation at the same time, but they were not on the hook to pay any reparations. So looking at that, it would seem that maybe Germany might have messed some things up. The thought is also that the subsequent Great Depression, which did in fact uh, affect everyone, not just the United States, tarnished the German economy. And when that happened, uh, Hoover instituted a moratorium against World War I payments for Germany uh, for a year, but they were canceled shortly after. They became a focal point for angry German citizens and a scapegoat by politicians trying to take power. Gosh, <laughs> doesn't sound familiar at all. Eventually they did repay it uh, in 2010, 
to the tune of 269 billion marks in total. I'm assuming that inflation changed that total because that is just solely for World War One. The turn into the 1930s gave rise to the Nazi party and their popularity would grow slowly over the next few years. Hitler taking office of the Chancellor in 1933. Reichstag giving him pretty much full control which I think paints a pretty heavy picture of how desperate people were for changes. The Nazi party, you know, politicked on the premise of uh, poor treatment of, against Germany following World War One, placing blame on their uh, situation on everything except for their own poor leadership. On the backs of the charisma of Hitler, Germany began to see their star rising. In 1934, the Nazi party and the German government experienced uh, the Night of the Long Knife and saw the execution of political opponents and further solidified Hitler's control of the government. Following this, German... Uh, Germany begins to ramp up and start breaking the arrangements of the Treaty of Versailles with the reinstitution of conscription in the military in 1935. 1936, German, Germany reoccupied the Rhineland, land that they had taken during World War I and had been a constant bit of contention uh, from them. That same year, the Spanish Civil War broke broke out and Germany supported their nationalist leader Francisco Franco. 1938 saw the annexation of Austria and not a lot of other nations really cared at the time. Later that same year the Munich Agreement allowed Germany to annex, annex part of Czechoslovakia in hopes that they would not expand any further. There's actually a stipulation in that agreement that they would not take any further land and you can guess how that turned out. 1938 also saw Kristallnacht or the Night of Broken Glass which was a massive wave of anti-Jewish uh, violence took place across Germany. This saw smashing attacks on Jewish-owned businesses all across the country in reaction to more scapegoating from the nationalistic Nazi party. In 1939, this really kicks it all off. In March, Germany invaded the rest of Czechoslovakia and violated the Munich Agreement and signed a non-aggression pact, which also created a secret arrangement that would split control over parts of Eastern Europe with the Soviet Union. In September that same year, they invaded Poland, and Warsaw fell to German control later that same month. It was also when France and Britain declared war on Germany, while the Soviet Union invaded the other parts of Poland that was closer to them, in accordance with the non-aggression pact that they had signed with Germany. This officially starts the war, and as 1940 comes around, battles have begun, and expanding the map of German conquest has begun to grow. By May, the Nazis had invaded Norway, Belgium, and started their invasion of France, which they had arranged to do so on the same day of each one, coincidentally. Uh, this was also, weirdly enough, the day that uh, Winston Churchill was put in as Prime Minister, taking over from Ch Chamberlain, who I quoted at the top of the episode. The German tactic was to circumvent the bolstered French defenses along the Maginot Line, which was the border between France and Germany. French knew something was going to happen. Again, they had a feeling made such a good effort to strengthen this area, but the Nazi tacticians reasoned that they could just take their forces through the wilderness of Belgium and strike through their borders with France instead of, you know, straight on the Maginot Line. It was the actions of the German invasion of Belgium and Netherlands that turned it from a quote-unquote phony war, which is what it was being termed as at the time, as no real action had happened, save a few, you know, skirmishes, with a route directly into France via Belgium, and all the France's defenses really built up in other locations, Germany pressed in. Several instances even revealed some intelligence on the oncoming invasion, but it happened too quickly to mount a proper defense. With the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, dwarfing the Air Force of Belgium and the Blitzkrieg methods of massive fast forces on the ground, air, with armored cavalry as well, uh, they overwhelmed. As the German army moved through France towards Paris, the allied forces of the British, French, and Dutch fighters had a fighting retreat as they moved towards Dunkirk, where many of them were evacuated in a massive civilian-assisted water rescue. British boats were asked to aid in the rescue, where almost 700 civilian boats were used to evacuate 
upwards of 25,000 troops. Ultimately, not everyone was rescued and there were many captured and held by German forces. Armistice was signed in the in June of 1940 where France officially surrendered to the German uh, occupation and it was split up into different sections. The northern half would be controlled almost exclusively by German forces and the southern section was run by a government called the Vichy, named after the uh, home, the new home of the French-led government. Vichy France is located in pretty much central France. Vichy government was either a puppet government or a government that helped the Nazis with their final solution. Either way, not a good look. Vichy acted as an authoritarian government letting the wealthy and powerful maintain their way of life while constricting the rights of those who live in the lower rungs of society. Not only that, but before the Nazis even started the official removal of Jews from the conquered lands uh, in France, the Vichy government began removing Jews, you know, for them. Confiscating their belongings, uh, arresting them, just ahead of the curve, I guess. When the official word came down, they were often the ones in charge of actually, you know, arresting the remainder of the Jewish people. This plan was twofold in the fact that, you know, with France, uh, well, the French, maintaining some bureaucratic power that's freed up German officers to be utilized elsewhere, with the Vichy doing work for them. And should they not walk that line, the conquest of the uh, remaining bits would not be that difficult at all. You know, there's only a little bit left of France to conquer. So it's not, you know, not a good look. And it really paints a picture for the people in charge of the citizens and the quality of life that they, that the citizens would have. While the war continued and the Nazis unleashed their terror, we stop here, discuss, you know, kind of the way of life, of people in occupied France. Of course, there's so much going on in World War II, but with the subject being post-war treatment of women in occupied areas, there's no time to discuss the war in total. I mentioned that there was a separation of control from the government perspective, and while the Vichy government told the people to essentially respect their new overseers, resistance would be met with many things, uh, and none of them good. You know, my thoughts initially are to put myself in the shoes of these people. Your military has been defeated within a month, and this feels like, you know, the last great war all over again. Almost two million men of your country's army were taken prisoner, deported to work camps, enslaved labor forces. The people who had taken over the land essentially gotten either someone in control of your lands who would do what they say or someone who would help them in, you know, in their overall mission. People all around began to either become radicalized by the authoritarian Vichy government and by even some of the Nazi soldiers who were now on patrol in, in your towns. Any money you would be made, uh, any money you made would be taxed heavily to pay the Germans for their occupation at home. At first, rations were not that tight, but as the war went on and valuable farmland got destroyed, money began to be scarce and those tightened up. It also depended on which part of the country you lived and how you fared. If you lived in a more metropolitan area, a higher level of importance was placed on the needs getting met. This could be due to a few factors, one being that the Germans would often be staying in these places over, over the smaller towns. Two, could be easier that controlling forces to keep large populations happy, to not cause riots, and three, these places made the money in terms of how people there worked jobs necessary for furthering the war effort, but they also spent money which would eventually come back to the German power due to the high taxes, right? Conversely, in more rural locations, occupations seem very hands-off with smaller population density and, you know, enough work to pretty much keep them busy. The people out in the rural areas were not a serious focal point for occupying forces. People in the countryside would, would not be at such close contact with the you know, any Germans, and the stress of that would not you know, befall them. There are many parts of France that would largely be ignored by the occupying Nazis. Only 
really seeing them at the beginning and end of the war. Living in the rural areas meant you were more likely to be close to the food or grow food yourself, and that security would be nice. Even if your crops get confiscated by the Germans, you lose a bushel or two here and there. Who knows, you know? Meanwhile, in the cities, you got hungry quickly if the shipments were late, low, or just didn't show up at all. So this way of life, when the Germans either took over your city and changed your factories to produce goods for their war efforts, made you pencil pushers for their officers, put a squeeze on the economy by wage control, ration tickets, confiscating property if they saw fit, or they should a takeover of the means of agriculture, restricting the flow of supply to the cities, either seizing crops or offering little in the way for payment of them. So this is the setup for the life and the French occupation, as I mentioned, it extrapolate into the other places, but this, uh, people were hired out by Germans in the way of the local French government. French government hired many French citizens for jobs supporting the German soldiers in different ways. Despite the flux of the economy, there was pay given, so it wasn't so desolate right away. Metropolitan cities were kept functioning as essentially relaxation or vacation spots for, uh, these German soldiers, places like Paris were revered for its arts and culture, so it was visited often by the soldiers during the war. I'm imagining the scene in uh, Inglorious Bastards where they're all, you know, they're all going to watch a movie. All these German soldiers and officers, they're all having a fancy night out, you know, eating at these restaurants, and that's the kind of image I get. While the war progressed, German occupation of the southern Free France extended well into the Vichy territory. As they did, they continued their methodology of occupation enter an urban area, use hotels to house men, officers would take over fancy villas or even chateaus around the area. They would take whatever they needed from the local population, which included workers. Men were often sent away for work and factory jobs in other places. You know, they would volunteer or be voluntold essentially to go work at a factory you know, maybe in Germany or wherever. Some men fled, choosing to live elsewhere and sometimes leave wives and children behind. German soldiers were told to behave by the commanders and, and many were, honestly. Uh, likewise, the Vichy government were uh, instituting propaganda, propaganda funneled to their people to respect the Germans, to make things as peaceful as they could be. I also saw places like uh, Ukraine. Uh, I saw some propaganda from Ukraine from World War II where it was like, ah, we together will be a strong, you know, this is a strong bond that we can have, like essentially that kind of thing. Like that's the kind of stuff that the local governments were telling their people to essentially just make it as smooth as they possibly could for the occupation. And I think in my own imagination, and maybe some of you listening can sympathize with this, that when told of German occupying places uh, during the war that they were all like like the ghettos in World War II movies and that soldiers were constantly beating people and you know just doing all these crazy things. I think it might be due to the fact that so many World War II films and media generally show either the war itself as in the fighting and liberation of places or will show the ghastly life of the Holocaust which is you know understandable not saying that the mass extermination is overplayed by any means but rather that those are the stories that often grip the viewers so there's a skew sense of what it was like because there's a whole lot of other people like obviously the holocaust is the figurehead of world war ii but there's a lot of other stories going on that i don't think we get told a lot of anyway you know in my research i found that many people were able to for one reason or another reconcile their new lives whether that was because they thought that this was the best way to survive or perhaps they thought that they would be you know really be under German control forever and felt that they should get used to it. I don't think anything 
anyone knows exactly why the people supported the, or collaborated or even worked for the Germans during World War II other than the people themselves. You know, this is such a nuanced time for the people occupied and there are other countries too, as mentioned, you know, uh, so like France, Belgium, the Netherlands, you know, these places. Uh, French have a lot of stories available and that's kind of why I'm so heavy handed with that and also, you know, keep in mind these stories are part and parcel to the experience overall so while many other countries experience things similarly so knowing what happened like how it happened in france france explains how it happened elsewhere too now not everyone welcomed the german occupation and there was a lot of resistance groups not at first but they grew over time obviously there's saboteurs and way of uh cutting communication cables uh, graffiti you know neither of which would really halt but they you know messages that inspired others to you know take up a similar mantle you know sowing seeds of doubt into the uh, german occupation the landscape of the oppressed versus the german oppressor was filled with shades of gray but people at the time definitely saw it as either one or the other and maybe maybe that's just how they presented there was probably some inner turmoil going on but definitely outward presenting you either like the Germans or you don't. And that was that was kind of how it went. Which I think is pretty evident, you know, by the handling of those deemed collaborators in the post-war. So, there are a few examples I found in way of uh, some women who willingly dated German soldiers, officers. I mean, there's a lot of examples, but, you know, some prominent, like, pictures that I've seen and videos. I watched a documentary where this one woman who, uh, she was, she was dating a commandant in the German military who was staying in a villa in the town that she lived in and she would sneak to the villa you know for a rendezvous if you will it, it, it is weird because like watching these people tell this story like you can tell she had a genuine like love for this guy and there was a moment in the documentary where she talked about how you know he wasn't supposed to have her there and she obviously wasn't supposed to be there and it was snowing at one point and he told her to wait back and then he would walk ahead and she could walk in his footprints in the snow so that she wouldn't be seen and he's like and then you wait here and i'll go get the car and i'll come pick you up and take you home and like the way this woman was telling the story she was like it was just so romantic you know it's such a it's it's such a strip back view of what was happening because you know you think all oh, german soldiers like you just immediately picture well i don't know i immediately picture you know stormtroopers and nazi guards and concentration camps and that scene in the pianist where they sick the dogs on the lady with the baby like that's what i immediately picture so it's hard to think about like oh yeah they are also just normal people um anyway so another story i found was a uh one of a woman who began as a file clerk of sorts for a german officer working with him day in day out and eventually you know the feelings sparked up uh another was um i think from the same documentary is this lady who she was just a like homemaker she clothed uh, like did laundry and stuff like that and ended up you know catching feelings from that so there's a lot of it you know a lot of examples of women entering you know willingly into relations with the germans and this you know this kind of thing not really specifically this but this would cause you know some of the actions at the liberation to commence but i don't i don't you know blame these women for what happened to like you know i don't think with the modern sentiment you can it would be hard to because like how could you fault them when many of the able-bodied men were sent off to do manual labor? You know, these women might have lost husbands, fathers, sons, nephews, whatever. Like, do you blame them for wanting to be a human, like, feel human emotions, like, natural emotions? I think it would be hard, like, to place blame squarely on them. 
Uh, I think there are some that could be blamed, even retrospectively. There are definitely ones who played the game of German occupation, happy to be given, you know, special treatment. There was a lot. That's a big one. Was trading, you know, either sexual favors or just companionship for special treatment while other people in the country struggled and like actively knew it was happening the uh the namesake brand uh namesake to the brand chanel coco chanel is probably a real big example of this uh, she had a successful design house by the time of the war's outbreak and during the time uh during the war she used her wealth and connections to make uh wealth to make connections in both the vichy and as well as the nazi officers who were you know, occupying where she lived. She stayed pretty much through the entire war in the Ritz-Carlton in Paris. Uh, she even, you know, was supposedly close with Nazi intelligence officers. She had a file for in Nazi intelligence, whatever that means. Which is also, you know, interesting given her thorough connections to the British higher-up. This connection between her and specifically Winston Churchill through, through her time from when she dated the Prince of Wales. I'm imagining that's where that came from. And I think that spared her, you know, the same treatment that these women that we're talking about today got at the end of the war. There's some situations where she found herself moving messages for the Germans, receiving preferential treatment, and, you know, uh, even asking the Germans to secure safety for her nephew at the time. Now, you know, doing what you can to make sure your family's safe. I think that's a pretty common theme in a lot of these. Um, I, there's also other examples of, like, you know, trading for extra rations for you know your your sick kids medicine you know different things like that was a big thing in a lot of the research but i still don't <laughs> i like i get it it's messed up but also if you're that person are you are you gonna are you gonna not do that or you know we'll get into that a little bit later i suppose but some other people would be angry about it and you know you would end up being targeted by some sort of group for receiving these favors as we learned last week specifically with the experiment by stanley milgram and the obedience experiment that people can be more likely to behave certain ways if they feel that it it could be not even necessarily right to do but it is what might be expected of them as we know people can do strange things in times of extreme hardships and this is shown almost every single aspect of this war and most wars probably all of them some other things that i think are important to know is that obviously the german soldiers did not bring any women with them when they occupied these places they did not uh no they didn't and if you remember that i also stated that not long before the war started they brought back conscription and military service it's not a volunteer system you are you know often looking at these younger men to fill your rank so you combine the invasion with these countries and the exporting of the military in those places into pow like slash labor camps and now you have a newer influx of younger men who have no real romantic connections with them i think is only natural that genuine connections would begin to occur and that this is the case in a lot of there are also nefarious connections in which the occupying force would use their possessions of power take pretty much anything so while some women may have indeed been in consensual relations with these soldiers would they even be in those positions if said soldiers were not there it's hard to say there's some really interesting images of the former example french women who were on picnics with german soldiers some i've seen with the uh, women wearing uniform jackets and such you know take away the context of what those uniforms stand for and we're doing in other places and they're actually you know kind of kind of sweet it's hard to say what the extent of french civilians knew about what was happening in the holocaust and to what extent any of them tried to learn with the vichy working with the nazis the propaganda could have influenced what information that would have been decimated to the public and what influence it would have had i imagine that you know pockets of resistance would show that the actions of anyone colluding with the enemy would be something that would get side-eyed glances at the very least 
with most of this stuff being very gray it's definitely as i've mentioned a nuanced issue which is something to consider with how things would end up for the women involved now with that basically going to summarize the remaining events of the war you know once again this story is about these women who were seen as collaborating with the enemy keeping in mind that the war carried on the financial and agricultural strain on the countries in Europe engulfed in the fighting and that would make things extremely tense in those places which is something to consider looking at the post-war act. So in December of 1941 Japan bombed Pearl Harbor which brought the U.S. into the war officially. They started in the Pacific theater specifically. Meanwhile the friendliness between the Nazis and the Soviet Union has soured with Hitler enacting Operation Barabosa. This brought the Soviet uh Union against the Germans and became a major factor in the defeat of the Axis power. In September 1943, on my birthday, actually, the 8th, Badoglio, the Bad Badoglio, the Badoglio government <laughs> had deposed Mussolini a little over a month prior, uh, surrendered to Allied forces. So they officially surrendered on September 8th in 1943. Yeah. So this, uh, but didn't actually work the way a typical surrender would work because shortly after you know the germans would <laughs> they surrendered and the germans were like all right well we'll just take this section of italy then and so the northern italy got captured for a time all the way to rome november 1943 soviets advanced against the eastern front pushing the germans out of kiev ukraine june of 1944 saw many things happening in the european theater such as the liberation of rome by the fourth and uh, by the on the 4th by the Allies, and then on the 6th saw the Normandy invasion begin. By July 25th, 1944, the Allied forces broke through Normandy beachfront and began their assault towards Paris. Near the end of August, the Allies would enter Paris with the help of resistance fighters, would push Germans out. Towards the end of the year, France, Belgium, and the Netherlands, those are all the other occupied countries that kind of featured these kinds of things also. At the end of 1944, the U.S. made it to the Philippines in the Pacific Campaign, while Allied forces collided in the Battle of the Bulge against the Germans. The turn of the New Year saw the Germans retreating, and by January 12th, the Soviets had liberated Poland, including Warsaw. Allies advanced on Germany, and the Soviets encircling Berlin by mid-April. April 30th, 1945, Adolf Hitler commits suicide in the bunker. German officially surrendered to Dwight D. Eisenhower on May 7th. August 6th and 9th, the U.S. dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki with the uh, with Japan officially surrendering, surrendering less than a month later, ending the war completely. So after this, world does not just return to normal. You know, how, how could it? right rebuilding sort of sorting the pieces the broken nations trying to figure everything out another factor is while the youth of many of these countries men were taken in form of prisoners of war and war camps the ones who remained were either you know puppets for the german controlled governments or busy working non-stop to get any food they could especially by the end of the war so in france and this is you know as stated before mirrored in other places many civil wars were happening with the puppet governments trying to maintain power and the resistance fighters jockeying for control over the land puppet governments like the Vichy argued that they acted in faith of what was best for the country during the war while the others acted felt they acted in their self-preservation and, and I think the end of the war was really hard on civilians involved in many places you know reports of dogs and cats being eaten in certain places to satiate hunger similar to some desperate scenarios of the women collaborators who would often find themselves offer themselves to feed their families their husbands brothers fathers maybe even sons been taken away when the military surrendered friends and people who knew about you know the women who were charged with these collaborations never said anything during the war but as soon as the war ended the governments were non-existent the people wanted retribution against many they felt deserved it before the events of the horizontal collaborators uh, many people who felt 
who the public felt aided the Germans, mostly men, were killed. You know, these these were riots that developed into mob justice and that kind of mentality is what put the women on the docket as the next target. So how many women do we think involved in relations with German soldiers? Well, in France specifically, the number is around 20,000 who faced persecution following the liberation of France. A number is dwarfed by the estimated either 80 to 100,000 80 to 200,000 that many historians believe to be children fathered by German soldiers and French women over the four years of occupation. So it's either, I've seen some that are like, it's 80,000, it's 200,000, I don't know. It, so it's in that range. Hard to say if all these were authentic, quote unquote, let's have a baby scenarios, or if they were victims of assault. As one of the super cool things uh, that the Vichy government did was banning abortions to a point of death for anyone caught trying to get one. You know, so that's always good. I believe that's part of the reason why it's so hard to tell, you know, who of those children was a form of consensual encounter and who was not. Even harder because there were probably some abortions done to simply prevent life being brought into that world, you know, and like that chaotic war, right? As the cities began to be liberated, the finger pointing and mob justice began. Oddly enough, the ringleaders of these events were often collaborators themselves, but used the moment to throw suspicion or shift blame, which makes total sense looking at this, you know, from a futuristic lens. If you have a angry people who are now able to be free with their accusations and make uh, and unafraid since the bad guys left, or of course they're going to be, you know, They'll do whatever they can to make sure someone else gets judged against actions similar to what they did. Okay, guys, the Germans are gone, so, you know, who helped them? <laughs> well, I saw Marie smile at a German one time. Shave her head. No, uh, but anyway, it, it, it happened almost immediately following the Allies' liberation of the cities. Allied forces thought it was odd, but I think many of them understood that things were complex and did not stand in the way of a lot of these local actions making sure the nazis were gone i think was probably their biggest uh biggest focus and they also kind of trusted the local governments as they came through they're like okay who's in charge and they'd be like oh, i am and then this would happen anyway you know in an almost mirrored example of what happened to the german women following world war one and leading into world war ii where the government wanted them charged for associating dating or anything related to a foreigner more specifically race mixing these women were shaved on their heads paraded around and treated poorly once they were marked with said shaved head now on the other end of the spectrum women of occupied countries were now being rounded up their heads their hair shaved and paraded around marked by this shaved head for all to know women who were targeted could be anything really there are stories of some prostitutes who were literally just catering to the new influx of people that included german soldiers as if there was like you know a massive business convention in town i can't say i fault them you know make that money and this wasn't caused to get attacked in every place some people were like okay well that makes sense yeah but other places not so some other reasons prostitutes would be targeted was because many saw their actions as receiving different benefits from the germans that could be either used to serve people that you know needed it more or maybe just jealousy uh in the forms of these people who wish they could have tried to do that i don't know it's hard to assume what people actually felt but i think it's important to at least attempt to think from their perspective so other other than prostitutes i mentioned the love story potential from the young french women in these places that could result in them being seen as collaborator genuine connections these real feelings they established for whatever reason some often ending in a child i mentioned that abortions were super illegal and while they still of course happened it wasn't until after this time that it would affect those who were weren't caught because that was also seen as a tell that they had been you know with germans 
There are also people who work genuine jobs like that didn't fall in love with them. They just were assigned by the local governments to work as cooks or housekeepers for Germans uh, offered or not really even offered. We're told to house Germans um, during the war and they would end up being seen as, you know, collaborators. I should say that they were, you know, you know, there were some men who also had their heads shaved. Like I said, there was the initial like just killing of a lot of the men collaborators and then as this was going on some men did get their he head shaves uh head shaved by because of volunteering for working in german factories german farms things like that but um it wasn't the the whole and it wasn't as egregious as the charges that they were levying against these women so get a full idea what was happening to these women uh, while they were being gathered up by mobs, their heads shaved and then paraded around town. Obviously, the lasting effects are that people would know who's the, who these women were because their heads are shaved. And they would, you know, continually be harassed or judged because of this. You know, many had to move to different places just, just because, you know, they were marked. And even then, you'd, you'd have to move and then get a wig because people would be like, oh, your head's shaved. Oh, okay. Other examples had them marching through the streets, crowds chasing them and harassing them, like a World War II Game of Thrones scene. Some instances saw these women drawn and painted on, typically a swastika or some writing, and I'm sure it was all super kind words that they wrote. Winston Churchill's secretary even reported seeing some of these events, stating, I watched an open lorry drive past to, uh, to the accompaniment of booze and catcalls from the French populace, the dozen miserable women in the back, every hair on their heads shaved off. They were in tears, hanging their heads in shame while disgusted by this cruelty. I reflected that uh, British had known no invasion or occupation for some 900 years, so we are not the best judges. And that really speaks, I think, to the whole thing. And in a few ways, that makes sense. You know, it's hard to put into perspective the emotions that the people were feeling. And that is why it's so easy to look back and go, well, that was messed up. Another description said, the, said, quote, The French were rounding up collaborators, cutting their hair off and burning it in huge piles, while one could smell it miles away. Also, women collaborators were forced to run and run the gauntlet and were really beat. You know, in addition to the revelation that some of these women were beaten by their fellow constituents, there are some darker images out there that show them having been tarred and feathered. Some of them tarred and feathered in some extreme areas which i saw some images of in research of this episode and it's absolutely disturbing and tarred and feathered like this is so wild and medieval <laughs> of a way to handle things there was no trial no admission or arguments to be heard by these women either so you know it's the accusations mob rule whatever happened happened there was beating stonings obviously being tarred and feathered and then rapes honestly against many of the women who themselves in all likelihood could have been victims of that already and now are being targeted so it's a very chaotic event you know and still maintaining the fact that this did not only happen you know in france but in other occupied nations during world war ii and a lot of these instances the expectation was that this was better than the alternative of letting things get uh you know festered and even big bigger riots you know occurring i'm not super confident that in that rationale but liberation era countries were so whacked it's hard to know you know what would have been effective in keeping things relatively calm and as i researched this topic i found a lot of comment threads where i think people uh, which i think point to the nuance of this subject you know maybe people fall into the camp of that it was hard for the people to survive and that some of the reasons they were targeted was because they chose a way to survive others say that the actions are justified that with the enemy in your homeland death before dishonor is the move you know face the fickle mistress herself iron instead of letting your country down all of these things are easy to say in retrospect of course it's hard to know you know who will do what 
until the fan gets hit. And the best we can do is to pretend that we will be with righteous in our actions when it does, but so few of us know what genuine hunger is, so what it feels like to not be safe in the comfort of your own home. We have no idea what it is like to be told that a soldier for an army that just deported your husband to a labor camp after they surrendered will now be staying in your home. One thought I have, and many others seem to have come to this conclusion too, that while the guilty collaborators often charged and sent off mobs to others, there is something to be said about the broken ego of the people in these places. And I think France more than others. You know, France, contrary to modern stereotyping, used to be a powerful and proud country. You know, the Kingdom of Francia, the home of Charlemagne, country that, for better or worse, did a lot of colonizing that rivaled England at its height. The first wars that can be considered to be world wars were the entirety of Europe and even Asia and Africa fighting to stop the French. Napoleon dominating so much that Europe was like, okay, let's relax, buddy. That, that's enough. All right. All right. That's enough. I need backup. Um, France was instrumental in World War One, even though many people don't consider them to be. All of this leading to World War Two, where they're not really recovered from the losses of World War One, to which they took a lot. And, you know, then just kind of getting blindsided and honestly gave up without much of a fight. And now these people needed a scapegoat, not similar to the Germans that, you know, and their hatred of foreigners and specifically Jews following World War One. Obviously, there is a bigger hatred in the latter, but, you know, no analogy is super perfect. So you put all this into some context and the riots and non-trials that led to these women being attacked for maybe being a collaborator or just being forced to work at a place that German soldiers lived and everything in between, it makes more sense. I think a lot of the, well, quote-unquote, well, don't sleep with the enemy show a couple things. One being that the German atrocities overpower the, overpower the ability to have a nuanced perspective on a lot of things in this war, which makes sense. Like, you see the pictures, you go to the museums, it makes it hard to make the argument that someone on the high level is either a spy or actively having an affair with, you know, German soldiers is the victim. Of course, this is why it is a nuanced issue, because as mentioned before, hopefully enough times that it is obvious that none of these were real trials and most of the women were not guilty if it had been. Oddly enough, the actual collaborators of the war, the Vichy government, saw no justice and most of them were able to live old age, you know, without even the slightest bit of public humiliation. These people were living opulently, actively participating in Jewish deportation and arrest, yet there are no pictures of them being tarred and feathered. And I think this speaks to the jealousy and reverence for those who have been, you know, who were seen as giving preferential treatment in ways of collaboration. These people who really didn't organize into resistance camps until after the war was on the downward spiral and still were even part of, weren't like really part of the official you know free france resistance if there you know was an official you know bit of it but i think ultimately with the allied forces moving through these countries best thing that uh to have done would be to hold trials not even like super official court one like at the very least ones where arguments could at least be heard you know it is clear that the liberation was messy just as the war had been but this is essentially the way the salem witch trials where people presumably either accuse people who had not done anything at all or that the things were done were not what they were made out you know the sentiment is echoed by many that when the war was ending everyone turned into resistance fight i don't know it's it's all messy which is you know the point i suppose with that let's move into some famous examples of the and then some of the new facts we learned you know in my research i learned a lot about some really famous examples of fiction that used this concept and was reminded of another the reminder is uh the incredible series band of brothers 
the HBO show that follows American soldiers as they travel through Europe uh, to liberate these places from the Nazis. In this show, these soldiers are driving down a Dutch road when they come across a woman with a shaved head who is carrying a baby. You know, all the men on several tanks kind of just stare at her in this weird way, presumably because they knew what this meant. Uh, one of them. One of them, I think, tells a guy to offer or something. I can't remember what it was, but, you know, they're all, all just kind of staring at her really weird. Another example in the media is a movie called Melina. It's a 2000 film starring Monica Bellucci. Uh, it tells the story of a woman charged with this exact type of offense, but with a sim not this exact type of offense and a similar vibe kind of happening, you know. Uh, at least that's what the people on Reddit are saying. I have not watched it, and reading the description on Wikipedia makes it sound like a movie that has no idea what it wants to be. And uh, another famous example, not from the Germans, but from the Spanish this time during the Spanish Civil War, comes from the uh, novel For Whom the Bell Tolls by Ernest Hemingway. The character Maria is raped in the story, and from this comes the charges that she, you know, her hair is also sheared off because of uh, a random musical connection. But the, you know, Hemingway novel For Whom the Bell Tolls is basis for the song Metallica song of the same name and that song listening to the words really does it like a really good job of illustrating the chaos of war and I just wanted to share that with you because it came into my brain and I had no other choice <laughs> another random music connection yeah that's right back-to-back -back music connection some say it couldn't be done I say nay anyway the band ABBA has its roots in the subject one of the singers Annie Fried Ligstad was born from uh, one of the relationships mentioned. Her father was a German soldier and her mother a Norwegian woman. After the war's conclusion, which is really when she was born, she was born in November of 1945. This is pretty close to it. Uh, her mother or grandmother both fled the country and then her mother ended up working like on the border, uh, but they fled to Sweden, which makes sense because ABBA, right? Uh, and they fled to escape retribution similar to what happened in France, but yeah, Norway was a little more, I don't know, they they did things a little differently. The Norwegian response to these actions was, you know, place the women and their children in camps and also keep a record of all of them while they grew up and, you know, check to see if the kids had any quote-unquote Germanic, you know, activities that they display, which, you know, could be the kid being good at marching or fighting, which all kind of seems a little Nazi-like to me, but, you know, exactly the kind of attitude you want to come in with, with, uh, when you're, you know, <laughs> combating potential sleeper cell Nazi babies, I suppose. I don't know. All right, <laughs> let's move on to the facts that we learned today. So, wild to me that, you know, there's just so much hypocrisy going on uh, through, you know, shared through the treatment of everyone during this time, both in handling of the so-called collaborators, but also in the governing body's handling of the people during the war. You know, the rules for thee, not for me, tale as old as time. The lack of nuance was also major this week. You were either a resistance fighter or a bootlicker and anything in between could get you tarred and feathered or worse. Also how turbulent the liberated countries were as the Germans fled, mob rule took over and many were killed in addition to the head shaving we learned about today. World War II also didn't know this, but is catalyst catalyst for so much music in the future. ABBA, Metallica, I don't know if Metallica counts, but it is tied to this topic very loosely, so I'll allow it. Final thought is that the, uh, total disregard for humanity in the war as a whole like we know about the holocaust and holocaust related stories but the stories like the ones endured by the women of occupied countries is jarring as well not not to compare tragedies but it is crazy i don't think i have really anything else for this one i learned a lot filled in some gaps from world war ii that i had learned about a fellow man and the jumps they go through to find any sort of resolve from the ashes of defeat make no mistake france was beaten 
so fast, never even tried. And it could be the case for other places as well that experienced the same thing. I'm not sure why France was so heavily documented with things of this nature, but I'm glad for it if only for the fact that it helps me tell all of you these stories. I hope it was informational and not super depressing. You know, next week is going to be a little more lighter. It's a listener suggestion, kind of. Uh, look at some of the hoaxes that have taken people as fools on more than one occasion. Again, things like, uh, things that people have believed that turned out to be false or vastly incorrect throughout history. You want to stick with the things that have been verified as hoaxes, but I will include some things that people might you know, believe might be, as well as some that people refuse to be verified, but are probably mostly hoaxes. I'm still going to use the word allegedly a lot, because, but I'm going to say it very, very sarcastically, I think, yeah. That seems to be the way to do it. So that's next week. Uh, it'll be somewhat similar to the Strange Experiments episode last week. So hopefully you like that one, uh, that format. If not, listen, send in your own suggestions to remedialscholar at gmail.com. That's just remedialscholar. There's no the at the front. Maybe I should make one because I feel like that might be using. But <laughs> yeah, so R-E-M-E-D-I-A-L-S-C-H-O-L-A-R at gmail.com. You can also, you know, once again, review us wherever possible. And remember, I can see the reviews, the total number of listens. Do that simple thing for me so I can have those numbers balance out. It would help me a lot. Share us on socials. Tell your friends and you know, listen to the other podcast I have, West of Nowhere. If you like sad things, that's what we like to talk about most. Not on purpose, but it is what it is. So thank you, everyone, and we will see you next time.